the reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those with whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord. Good uh, morning, Christ City. <clears throat> oh, whoa, whoa. I think we've got a room full of folks here. What do you, all of a sudden, uh, you lost your voices. Good morning, church. Um, it's, uh, it's actually been a few weeks since I've uh, preached uh, here, so if we've not yet met or it's been a while since you've seen me, uh, I just want to reintroduce myself. My name's Matthew uh, Watson. I serve as the pastor uh, here at Christ City. I, I do want to say this uh, before we jump in, how blessed I am actually that we uh, are a church that have so many gifted preachers. Um, Justin Fung and yeah, I, I mean, I guess I didn't think of that as terms of me. <laughs> But you guys really are blessed to have me. I don't know. You say thank you to the Lord for this year. You can include me. Um, but seriously, I mean, Justin Fung and uh, Lisa Rodriguez Watson, yes, there is a relation. Uh, Andrea Ackerman, I mean, just over the past several weeks, they have really brought uh, the word to us. I mean, and, and they have been uh, faithful uh, biblically and in God-honoring ways of uh, opening the scriptures and pointing us towards life in Christ and the good news that's found there. They've ministered to me over these past weeks. They've uh, pointed me towards Jesus' work in the world, and they have reminded me of the love of the Father. They have stirred my desires for the power of the Holy Spirit and have reminded me of what Christ has done for us. So I, as we're entering our third week of Advent, I got to say my soul is so, it's, frankly, it's so centered this season in ways that it hasn't been in previous Advents. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because I've sat under the faithful teaching of folks that are within our church. So I'm just, I'm grateful for that. My heart is full. And so I thank God for that. I, 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 and I have to say that I want more that I want, I want more of Christ. I, I, I want to continue to have an Advent season that drips with the reminders of the true meaning of this season. That, that I want to continue down this Advent path that finds me in a season that more faithfully reflects my faith. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. The Advent season, this Christmas season, is one in which Christians around the world hold uh, their hearts and minds and collective memories and turn it towards that first arrival. The first Noel, the holy night when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelling first in swaddling clothes in a borrowed barn and then later in grave clothes in a borrowed tomb. Advent prompts us to look back 2,000 years and to celebrate when God in flesh entered the world and ushered in the first fruits of this new kingdom. But Advent also beckons us to look forward as we await the second Adventus when our Christ King will return again and will set all things new and right. 
As we live in between these two advents, the one past and the one that's on its way, we carve out a holiday season whose purpose is to remind us to celebrate the newborn king. Somewhere, though, along uh, this uh, 2,000-year journey of advents, uh, we uh, have gotten detoured. We've lost our way, either by intention or by accident, dramatically so at times. And Sometimes we find ourselves arriving at uh, December 25th exhausted and in debt rather than having arrived there, having reflected well on what it means to have joy and hope and peace and love. For the past two weeks as a church, we have anchored ourselves. We have anchored our Advent series in uh, Luke's gospel in chapter two. We've read the same passage for three weeks now just to, to soak in that. In Luke 2, an angel of God, a a messenger of the Lord, he comes to the shepherds who were keeping sheep in a pasture. And then they were just really in the middle of nowhere, actually. And the messenger shares with them the news of Jesus' birth in a town that's not far from where they were keeping watch over the sheep. And this passage describing the first advent, the first adventus, um, the inaugural arrival of our ultimate rescuer, Jesus, this passage begins with shepherds keeping watch in the middle of the night. The shepherds were engaged in a kind of vigil. As Lisa and Justin have shared in previous weeks, uh, what a vigil is, it's the act of remaining awake while others are sleeping, most often for the purpose of praying or for remembering or for anticipating the arrival of something, especially a holy or a sacred moment. Just as the shepherds were holding vigil on the eve of that first Christmas, we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean and what does it look like for us to hold vigil today, especially as we live in anticipation of Christ's second arrival? There are four Advent virtues that are traditionally ascribed to Christ in this season. Hope, joy, Love and peace. These are reflected in the Advent wreath. And as so we've been looking at the vigil keeping through this sort of four-paned window of these Advent virtues. And we've been asking more specifically, how do we keep vigil over them? How do we keep watch over them? How do we keep vigil over peace or hope or joy? And this week, how do we keep vigil over love? How do we keep watch over love? When I was a kid uh, growing up, um, there was a ritual that we had in my house. Um, Each Christmas Eve, my dad would read the book The Night Before Christmas to me. Um, It's a a tradition that I've actually carried in my family. I love this story. We have actually, we have several uh, versions of The Night Before Christmas. We have sort of the traditional one. We have one that's actually a treasure to us. My dad recorded it which hearing my southern Texas dad, like, towards not before Christmas, like, just, it's hilarious. Like, we can't help but laugh and cry every time we hear it. We have another one because my family is thoroughly Texan. They gave me Twas the Night Before Christmas in Texas, uh, which we don't read quite as much, but is on the shelf. It's, so this tradition has just become kind of a part of, of our Christmas Eve journey. I love the story. I love the rhyming of it. I love the emotions that it stirs in me. Um, chiefly, in that the emotion that really kind of stirs in me whenever I read it is one of being cared for, even when I'm resting. You guys know the story, the, the opening lines of it. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house 
Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And you, guys, you guys know the story. I love it. <laughs> Goosebumps already. <laughs> I'm so happy. It begins with this sense of peace and calm and rest made all the more because it's set at night. And we find later that the children are all tucked in their beds, that they're fast asleep, that it's Christmas Eve and, and everyone, nearly everyone is asleep. But the bulk of the story, it actually takes place at night. When the kids are sleeping, Santa arrives. Santa is awake while others are sleeping. He, he shows up to deliver Christmas toys and soon to be discovered Christmas joy, all under the watchful eye of the dad who's also awake. The visions are nestled all, the children are nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums. Excellent. You guys are perfect. You guys available Christmas Eve? I just had you kind of come over and do this with the kids. The kids are anticipating Christmas morning and the gifts and goodies that the morning will bring us, but it is Santa and the dad uh, who are watching over the night. They're holding vigil to ensure a Christmas morning well celebrated. And one of the things that I love about this classic book is how it ends. It actually doesn't end with the children waking up to all that Santa has provided. It doesn't end with a big fanfare or celebration of St. Nick and the dad who've been up all night. The book actually ends a bit unresolved in a way. It ends with Santa getting no recognition and simply leaving with the pronouncement of a blessing. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. The story ends in the night, not in the morning. When I was a kid, uh, when I went to bed on Christmas Eve, I knew that something was going on while I slept. I wasn't sure, you know, what or what, but, but, but I knew that someone was watching over the night, that someone was, was actually working to ensure that Christmas would uh, arrive on time and ready. And each Christmas morning when I woke up, I wasn't disappointed. The fruit of the Christmas Eve night watching was put on full display in sort of the, the wild, like Tasmanian devil-like unwrapping of presents that would occur in the morning. The emptying of the stockings. Now, I didn't use that language then, but I was the beneficiary of the vigil keeping that took place the night before. While I slept, others kept vigil over the night. While I was unaware, while I was preoccupied of dreaming of sugar plums, whatever a sugar plum is. Somebody was, somebody else, either Santa or my parents, don't want to ruin anything for anybody here, or both were laboring for my good. They, motivated by their love towards me, were keeping watch. And they were doing so in obscurity, which is one of the things that I love about the story. Santa doesn't get credit. One of the things I've thought about this, about how do we keep vigil over love, I think that it is this, actually. That one of the ways that we keep vigil over love is in obscurity. One of the things about vigil keeping is its obscurity. It's in the darkness nature of it. Vigils aren't often done with fanfare or with fame. I think one of the ways that we keep vigil over love is actually in, in obscurity, in, in the dim, in the hidden and concealed places of the night in anticipation of the dawn. Shepherds, they loved in obscurity. Our passage opens in Luke 2, verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
These shepherds, the first hearers of the good news of Jesus' birth, they were the embodiment of obscure living and loving. They are not named in the passage, and neither is their location even named. They are simply shepherds in some field watching someone's sheep, but we know not who. And yet God knew. He knew who they were. He knew where they were. God sent a messenger to them to share the news with them. It wasn't to the mighty, to the proud, or to the famous that God first brought his message. But in the obscure places, in the nighttime places, to those that understood the work of vigil keeping, it was to them that God first brought the news of Jesus' birth. To keep vigil over love is to keep vigil and to love in obscurity. I think we see this in the role the shepherds play in the nativity story, but we also see it just plain in Jesus' own birth. In Luke 2, verse 11, it says, Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem which is several miles away from Jerusalem. It was, it was a fine town. It played a role in parts of Old Testament history, particularly in David's story. But the reality is, is that Bethlehem wasn't at the center of anyone's universe. It certainly wasn't a town that had much influence on the regional or global affairs of the day. When measured against the importance of other contemporary cities, we actually get to see the indistinctness of Bethlehem. Ancient cities around the time of Jesus, Rome, had nearly a million people in it. Other cities, Constantinople and Turkey, had 500,000. Alexandria in Egypt, the same. Half a million. Xi'an in China at the time of Jesus' birth had 400,000 people. Palipatra in India had 400,000 people. Seleucia in Iraq, 400,000 people. In Bethlehem, it's impossible to tell, but no more than a few hundred Jesus was born in a small town in relative obscurity, yet it was from this out-of-the-way place that Jesus was to display the great love of God. If we are to keep vigil over love, it will mean more times than not that we actually love in obscure places. Not in limelight or on center stage, but in the margin, in the out-of-the-way, or in the dark, even as we anticipate the dawn. The passage goes on in describing Jesus' birth. In verse 12, This will be a sign to you, the messenger says. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The gospel tells us that Mary and Joseph, that, we were, that they were traveling to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem during a Roman census that was being taken. However, upon arriving in Bethlehem, these two travelers, they're actually unable to find a place to stay. Thus, Jesus' birth in a stable and being laid in a manger. Now, Luke doesn't give much backstory on this. But what we know of ancient Near Eastern cultures and what we know of Jewish culture, and goodness gracious, what we just know of the way families work, we intuitively know that this situation isn't common and something's not right. Now, look, here's the deal. This holiday season, I know many of us are going to travel back to our hometowns, back to our homes. And I suspect that when you head back, there's going to be more people that want to see you than you actually have time to see. Now, there's sometimes, uh, to be honest with you, like when Lisa and I, when we travel to Dallas, where I'm from, or to Miami, where we're from, sometimes when we go there, we can't tell people that we've shown up. 
because we can't see everybody that's there and they're going to be mad. And so like we don't post on social media and we're like sneaking into our hometowns because people are going to be mad. And then I li- I'm, I, they're like, how come you didn't see me? I'm like, dude, I'm only here for five days. I can't see the 700 people that I know in this town, man. Because there's folks, and, and, now, and imagine also, like when you're heading back to your hometown, um, imagine this, that you're heading back to your hometown and maybe you're engaged. Folks want to see that and celebrate that. Or maybe you're expecting a child, they want to celebrate with you in that. And yet, no one takes you in. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to know something's not right here. For Luke, and the gospel writers to record that Joseph and Mary didn't have a place to stay indicates that there must have been some amount of shame or shunning of Joseph and Mary. The birth of a child was typically met with fanfare and celebration, yet in Jesus' birth, there's no celebration in the typical sense of the word, no family saved for, saved for mother and father that would gather around and then some shepherds show up. Not just the the birthplace, by the way, the fact that they're in a manger in Bethlehem. It's not just the birthplace, but other things sort of indicate the obscurity of Jesus' birth. Jesus' name, by the way, Jesus is a Greek version of his Hebrew name, Yeshua, which actually was one of the most common Hebrew names at the time, especially in the first century. The passage says that Jesus would find that the shepherds would find Jesus wrapped in cloths. And what this description by the angel is indicating is that this newborn king, he's going to be dressed quite ordinarily, quite unremarkably. And so when you put this all together, the location of Jesus' birth, the simplicity of the birth, the circumstances of the birth, his name, those who first visited him, you put all this together and what emerges is an image of the nativity that is shrouded in obscurity. It's enveloped in ordinariness so that to the contrary of how we might expect a hero to explode onto the scene. And yet here it is. A simple indistinctness. Power made small. Love made small. And Jesus, the most loving most fully human of any human that ever lived. This was the way that he lived and that he loved to be faithful even in the obscure places of life. In a world tempted by beauty and power and fame, the way of Jesus, the way of love and of humanity seems to be something far different than that. If we are to keep vigil over love, it will mean that our love will often take place in obscurity and in the ordinary days of life. Let us not despise those things, church. But celebrate them. For to keep vigil over love will not only do so at times in obscurity, but we will also uh, keep vigil over love sacrificially. The thing about love, about true and honest and noble love, is that it gives. It, 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 it sacrifices, actually. Verse 11, again, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. A Savior has been born to you, the angel says. To you. He says it to the, to the shepherds, to you, so to all of you. 
It's not just to Joseph and Mary that the Savior was born. It was not just to the parents that the Savior was born. But it was to, to you. He's speaking to the shepherds, to the day laborers, to those on the outskirts of town, to those awake while others sleep, to those despised by the well-off and the well-educated. The Savior has been born to you. And this is what is captured in the most famous of verses that we would know in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God loved, he gave. Because God loved, God sacrificed. Because God loved uh, in the town of David, a savior was born to us. The, the, the paradox is that the things that you love, you actually give those things away. You don't hoard them. You share the things that you love because when you share those things, it actually multiplies them. It doesn't diminish them. Lisa and I, we, uh, one of the things we like to do, it's actually kind of part of, our, part of my Sabbath uh, rhythm, is that we really enjoy cooking. Um, Lisa's a really good cook. I know how to cook one thing relatively well. She knows how to cook a lot of things amazingly well. We, just, we love to cook. Um, on Christmas Eve, we're going to have a Noche Buena dinner. Uh, Noche Buena is a traditional Cuban feast that takes place on December 24th. Uh, Lisa's going to cook just yuca, plantains, rice, like black beans, flan, lechon, which is a roasted pig. Uh, you guys are all invited. Feel free to show up. Talk to Lisa about it. Um, <laughs> now, here's the thing about it. It's going like, to take us a day to cook this. Like, it's no small feat to manage this. And it's going to taste amazing. But one of the key ingredients that goes into the Noche Buena dinner, one of the things that you're not going to find at the Safeway or the Mercado or wherever it is, at least is shopping for all this stuff, the thing is that the key ingredient isn't going to be found in those places. And it's not even going to take place when we're roasting the pig or when we're seasoning the beans. The key ingredient to make that meal taste good are folks gathered around the table. Because when you love something, you share it. You, you give that thing away. We share the things we love. And it multiplies that thing. Our cooking, it just tastes better when there's more people around the table. We share things that we love. You ask me about my kids. I'm going to talk your ear off. You better like have a signal with somebody to help me get out of this conversation with Matthew about his kids he's like on and on i'm going to tell you about you know what they've done or you know just they're i'm just going to tell you stories why because i love my kids you ask me about my wife I, you know how she's doing i'm going to tell you about how she's uh, passionate about love and justice and about the small but beautiful things in the world that she does. I'll share with you about the troubles she's gotten into because of her passion for Christ and the marginalized. I'll share with you about how we met and fell in love. Why? Because I love her. You ask me about Christ. Now you better figure out how you're going to get out of that conversation because I'm going to tell you about the goodness and greatness of God, about the one who rescued me and continues to rescue me daily. Because you share the things that you love. And in sharing them, it's multiplied. As my friend Greg Gibson, who pastors in Memphis, pointed out recently that actually it's not hate, but selfishness that's the opposite of love. Because selfishness is always withholding. 
It's always keeping back. It's always keeping distant. But that's not so with love. Love gives. It gives away. If we're to keep vigil over love, it means that we will be those who give and who sacrifice. Not in our own passions or hard work, but in response to God's love in Christ Jesus. Love that has its origins in God is a love that sacrifices. The sharing isn't out of surplus, by the way. There's not a sacrifice. I'm not sure that it's actually love. Um, Another way to look at it is this. If you look at all of the things right now in your life for which you are sacrificing, if you add up all of those and then look at the beneficiary of those sacrifices, then that's going to tell you the thing that you love. If you look at all of the sacrifices in your life and the one for whom you're sacrificing is yourself, then I think that that actually points to the thing to which you love. And yet, in God's giving of his son, and in his son's sacrifice on the cross, we can see what love looks like. It looks like sacrifice from which new life emerges. It looks like death, but a thousand resurrections. It looks quite like hope and joy and peace and love. Christina Rossetti was a 19th century British poet. She wrote a few Christmas season poems, including In the Bleak Midwinter. Her poem, Love Came Down, begins this way. Love came down at Christmas. Love, all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign. Love shall be our token. Love be yours, love be mine. Love to God and all men, love for plea and gift and sign. This Advent season, as we reflect on the first Advent and anticipate the Advent to come, let us be found keeping vigil over love. In beautiful ways, yet ordinary and obscure, and let us be found keeping vigil over love in sacrificial ways that reflect God's love towards the world. Let love be our token. Love be yours and love be mine. Love all lovely because of the love divine. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that that this word that we receive from our forebrother Luke in his gospel, that the message that came to the shepherds, Lord, that it would come to us as well. That the embodiment of that message in your son, Jesus Christ, would would, would fall upon us and in us, God, and that it would shape us by the power of your Spirit, by the subtlety and the subtle working of your Spirit. 
God, I pray that you would find us exploring what it means for us to keep vigil over love. Lord, let us not despise you the ordinary places in which we're called to display love. Let us not despise the out of the way or the obscure. But in so loving in those places, remember that we're displaying the kind of love that was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And God, let us love sacrificially. Let not that sacrifice embitter us, but let us embolden us to trust your provision in our lives, knowing that we'll never outgive you. And that in so keeping vigil over love, that you're shaping us, that you're healing us, that you're restoring us as we follow in your footsteps. Pray all these things in Christ's name.